Thanks, Ben. Good to see you all. I was just on the stage in the baptism, so it's the same person. Uh, now, I dressed up for this. I took the bow tie off because it's not a real bow tie, and I was afraid it was going to, like, fall off halfway, and you're going to look at me and judge me for the whole sermon. Then God would be disappointed for you judging me and just make a mess. So I just went and took it off. But I did dress up, and I did dress up, one, for baptisms, because I wanted to get in on those good pictures. And two, um, because it's Valentine's Day, right? So I got my pink on, and it's Valentine's Day. And I prepared a Valentine's Day message, and it's on death. So there you go, really, really exciting. But that's what we're covering today. Um, Now, what's interesting about this is death is actually a pretty important part of the Valentine story. If you don't know, uh, St. Valentine, he was beheaded on February 14th of 269, A.D., somewhere around there. So for the last 1,350 years, or 1,750 years, we've been celebrating this day. And it's the day that he was brutally um, murdered. And so death is a part of that. It's such a fun story. Uh, You can Google it, learn more about it. Really, really neat. Kind of his life and this commitment to helping people understand Jesus. But uh, death was a part of it. And we will actually joke about the Valentine's peace and death, but... We really are talking about death today and the experience of death. And death's an interesting thing. And there's just no way to really avoid it, right? And all of us have some folks in our life that we've lost in some way there. Some concern about losing nails. This is a, a year, or this past 12 months has been a year of a lot of death. And in some ways, people would go, see, death, death, death. That's why I can't believe in God. See, all that pain, all that suffering, I, I, I mean, there's just no way I can believe in God. Or if, you, if, you may, if I had to believe in God, there's definitely no way I can believe that he's good. Right? Because of all the pain and sorrow. And what's so interesting about this is I would just argue that while death seems to be a big obstacle and roadblock, perhaps death is actually a really good explanation for God. For example... The idea of pain and sorrow and sadness when people die. Why do you feel that? Have you thought about that? Like, why do you shed tears? I mean, if it were all just a bag of bones and chemicals, why would we cry? And the reason we cry and the reason we feel such deep sadness and pain, and why a lot of us are grieving a lot of stuff this year, is because something in your head, you're smart and your body's telling you this, something in your head is telling you something's off. Every time a tear rolls down your cheek, of sadness, There's a reason. And the reason being is your body and your mind and your soul are kind of saying, hey, hey, there's something that's not right about this. In other words, what's being whispered to you in your own soul is this isn't the way that it should be. Every time we grieve, every single time, what, what our bodies and our minds are telling us is this is not how it's supposed to be. Right? And so either we can end up in a place of deep despair, and paralysis because of that. Or we can consider, if it's not the way it's supposed to be, then how is it supposed to be? And why is it not that way, and how do you respond? And see, that's where, that's where God, the, the story of God, his story is so important because we have all sorts of opinions about how we got here, right? Bag of chemicals, two atoms bumping together, some kind of big collision, this evolution between this tiny little amoeba that turns into a monkey that turns into a man. We have, we have all sorts of opinions about how we got here, but here's the thing about all those opinions. None of them answer the why we're here. Right? And so when you look at these little kiddos that we just got to baptize, you look at them and they're just 
so adorable. And I, honestly, I was so amazed to just be able to pray. And they just were smiling and content, not screaming. Apparently, I'm really good with kids. Right? And so I'm just praying and thinking, there's just so much joy and happiness. And then you wonder, and we talk about this all the time, well, why in the world did their parents decide to have those kids? Right? Did they think it would complete them? That their life was going to get easier? That they were going to get more sleep? That it was going to make them like each other more? No, right? If you've had parents, if you had kids for a while, you know none of those things are true, right? And so why in the world do they do that? Well, for some reason, deep inside them, they understood that they could, and they, they, these, are, these are all at least second children. For the master leaders, I think it's like their 12th, whatever that is, right? At least second child. You got Joey and they'll Lane, right? There's some decision in this that goes, we have enough love to offer a child and support to offer a child. So now we have an understanding of how we create and produce children. So you go, well, why in the world are we here? And this is what's so beautiful about the Christian worldview. The Bible tells us that in the beginning, long before we ever were, God existed, which most brilliant scientific minds kind of of shrug their shoulder and say, well, something was greater than us that kind of initiated this. And the scriptures say that God existed, but he didn't just exist. He existed in three distinct persons. God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had perfect love, perfect community, perfect unity. Everything was good. In fact, they had such perfect love that it was infinite. And you know this, I know this. Whenever you have more than you need, what do you do with it? Don't just throw it away. You look for someone, something to offer those things to, right? If you have more than you need, food, clothes, what do you do? You find someone to give them to. So what do you do if you have infinite love, infinite unity, infinite connection, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? What do you do? Well, the most logical and plausible explanation is if you have all that love and all that affection, then it would make sense that you would identify or create an object to pour out all that love. And so now all of a sudden we have this understanding that perhaps the why we're here is because the God of the universe had infinite love to pour out on his children. But then the next question is, well, if that's the case, if that's the case, that God had infinite love, that, I could, that he would pour that out on me, and his plan is to pour that out on me for all eternity. First of all, why don't I feel it? And second of all, why is there death? Which leads us to where we've been for the last six weeks in this series called Happy Strife, Happy Life. And kind of the understanding is there are two kingdoms that kind of play out in the world, right? There is what we would call the the kingdom of earth. That's the one you and I live in. We're literally sitting in it right now. The kingdom of earth. This is the earth. This is the, the place that all of us live. That is here. And in here, there is pain and there's sorrow and there's sadness. And you go, well, why in the world do we feel that? Well, because in the beginning... There was a kingdom of heaven that was built for all of us. And somehow, some way, the first humans, and same with us, for some reason, we decided that we weren't interested in having a kingdom and a Lord that was over us. And we wanted to be in charge of ourselves. We go, not interested in this. We'll go back over here. And over here in the kingdom of earth is there's pain and there's sorrow and there's sadness. And it's not God's fault. Right? It is, it is the decisions we've made. It's the decisions humans have made and all those things. And so the world that we live in and all the pain and all the sorrow, the reason you shed those tears is your body is telling you this is not the way it was supposed to be. This is not the world you were created for. So deep down inside of us, we go, there shouldn't be death. 
There shouldn't be sorrow. There shouldn't be pain. So how do I get into a world that doesn't have sorrow and pain and death? And so it happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus shows up onto this planet as God, as a human. And what he did is he invited all of us, invited all of us to leave here and go there, the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's what's really, really neat. You got to stay with me. This is brand new for you. Is that's not something that happens when you die and you get beamed up to heaven. No, there's some of that. But what, what the scriptures are, tell us, reveal to us, is it's actually possible. It's actually possible to leave here now and go there now and start experiencing all the fruit of heaven. Right for a second, you know, when we prayed for those little boys, they're just smiling, we're singing these songs, there's just something that just feels right. Right in the midst of all the other chaos. It feels right. And the reason it feels right, and the reason we have those feelings is God is establishing his kingdom now and inviting you to it now. And so the big idea for the last six weeks is in order to get there, you got to leave here. Really, really that simple. In order to get there, you got to leave here. But here's the problem. In order to get where you want to go, you have to leave where you want to stay. And so much about it is, I don't want to leave here because I like to be in charge. I like to be in control. And one of the interesting things that's happened in the last year, that's why we're calling it Happy Strife, Happy Life, is all of a sudden, now where we are, now the place that we exist, there's so much pain and sorrow. Finally, we're open to the idea that maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to pack up our bags and pursue a better place. In order to get where you want to go, you got to leave where you want to stay. And what Dave Ramsey says it this way, is the only time people finally change, go there, is when the pain of the same is greater than the pain of change. And so what we've been looking at is this idea that strife and conflict, they're not permanent, they're temporary. But what they are, pain and sorrow and strife and all those things, are a place where you enter a doorway, where you go, ah, this hurts, and you can at that point choose to go back to where you came from. Or finally go there into the kingdom of heaven. So happy strife, happy life is this understanding that even in the pain and sorrow, there is, this is, could be time for us to finally, finally chase after the kingdom. So some of you, this is brand new news for you. Some of you go, I'm not even sure I believe this. And what's so beautiful is Jesus is inviting you to experience all the things of the kingdom of heaven. Now this isn't puppy dogs and rainbows. There will be pain and there will be sorrow, but Jesus is inviting you to have his peace and his joy and his love. And so, we, four weeks we talked about that, and now we're in this kind of 2.0 series called Happy Strife, Happy Life, Plus. And the reason Plus is because everybody's using the Plus these days. You got Apple TV Plus, you got Hulu Plus, you got Paramount Plus, and what do you know about the Plus and all these streaming is, um, it's going to cost you more. That's it, right? You get access to things you didn't have access before, but it's going to cost you more. And so what we were kind of looking at is real humans that actually existed in the history of the world, real humans who experienced pain and sorrow and strife. And last week we looked at this centurion. Literally means leader of a hundred in this little bitty town of Capernaum. And we saw something so crazy for him as we saw that moment when the light bulb went off, right? The thing we're praying for for Vinny and Lane, the light bulb going off where they, he finally goes, that's the old kingdom. I'm going to the new kingdom. And what we learned, what we learned is about this word, faith. And here's what faith is. Faith is the key. Faith is the key to the kingdom of heaven. Both literally. The way you get from here and go there, there's only one way. And it's faith. 
So anyway, and this faith, and here's the really interesting thing about faith. We learned it last week. Just want to remind you. Faith doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to have it all right. And faith doesn't actually even begin with you. We're really going to double down on that thought today. Faith actually begins with Jesus. He's the initiator of faith. And faith isn't something you know more about. In fact, we've been talking about it. Uh, faith is obedience before understanding, right? Faith is, even though I don't understand it all, even though I don't understand it all, I'm still going to trust God. In fact, so the, the working definition we've been using for faith is, it is obeying, not just believing, even when your senses tell you otherwise, right? Hey, it is time to leave here and go there. You're like, oh, I'm just not so sure. Don't know what that's like. And I go, well, how's here working out for you? Right? Well, I don't really know. Could God guarantee me success? If I leave that job, if I, if I do that thing, if I sell the house, if I buy the house, if, I, if we have the kids, if we adopt, if we foster, all that kind of stuff, you go, whoa, whoa, whoa. God, if you just would guarantee all that stuff, and God, would, if you'd explain it all, I would enter the kingdom. And the reality is faith, 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 is believing and obeying long before you understand all the details. So we learned about this centurion who kind of got to the end of his rope, had no hope, had no choice to finally go. Either my servant that he loves is going to die or someone greater than me, someone more powerful than me, someone with access to the keys to the kingdom of heaven, someone with access to God. Either there is no hope and we're just going to live in this depressed world or, or, or. I'm going to have to trust even though I don't understand it. I'm going to have to obey even though I don't understand it. So we saw three things about faith last week. First is it begins with Jesus starts with jesus this is not something you have to manufacture you can't build the key yourself you can't manufacture it It all starts with jesus it is a gift from him faith is a gift but you got to open it the second one is you don't even have to get it all right faith and we saw the centurion he didn't even understand yet that jesus was god he understood he had access to god but even in that jesus marveled at his faith in other words you don't have to have it all figured out you don't have to have it all right Right? We learned this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. It says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they'll see God. Meaning, not the smart ones, not the educated, not the ones who figured it all out. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have perfect faith. Just has a faith. And so, the third piece that's really, really important, it has less to do about you, with your confidence and your certainty, and more to do with the object of your faith. Let me remind you of the analogy. So, two hikers are hiking, right? They're hiking somewhere on, on edge of a cliff. And they walk, and the, the ground gives out, and both hikers fall to the, the, down, the hill, uh, down the side of a plateau or cliff, and they're holding on. They're there. They're both holding on, and there are two options to go back up. These big, giant branches that they could grab and pull themselves up, right? And one hiker's going, this is the branch. We've got to do this branch, right? He is 100% confident. He's going, that's the branch that will save us. All we got to do is cling to it, right? Cling to it. The other hiker is going, I don't think that's the branch. Actually, I think this is this branch. How confident are you? Well, I don't know. 30% confident? I'm 30% confident that this branch is going to hold me if I grab it. So, one person is 100% confident in one branch. The other guy's 30% confident in this branch. And so, they both go, I guess we're going to try it. The one who's 100% confident in the branch goes and grabs it, tries to pull himself up, up, and guess what happens? The branch breaks, and he dies. The other guy, only 30% confident, goes and grabs the branch, Starts to pull himself up, and it holds him. Well, which one was saved? The one who put the, his hope and his trust in the right branch, even though he wasn't very confident in it. In other words, this isn't all about you being so confident in all those things. It has everything to do with where you are placing your trust. In that Old Testament, in Proverbs, Solomon, really, really bright king, says, 
that, that our job is to trust in the Lord with all of our heart. You hear this. And lean not on our own understanding. Right? So this is about moving the trust into Jesus. So that's what we've got to figure out. How in the world do we put our trust in that? So remember, I told you, first step in that is it all begins with Jesus. So we're going to uh, look at that story today. And just a reminder, just so you know what's going on. Where we've been is we've been reading about uh, this, this, uh, uh, chap- uh, this book of the Bible called the Gospel of Luke. Luke was a real person, real human. And Luke was a doctor, okay? He was a doctor turned investigative journalist. And what I mean by that is there is a rich, rich ruler named Theophilus, okay? He was a Roman ruler, all true. And Theophilus was wondering if he should put his faith in Jesus, but there's a problem. This guy is rich, has lots of influence, lots of affluence. And the reason being is he had all the authority and the power given to him by Caesar. Real people in history and the Roman Empire. But here's the problem. In order for Theophilus to have all the access to the, all the keys in the kingdom of earth, all the good things, the nice money, the, you know, the women, the, the, you know, the clothing, the, the housing, whatever it is. In order for Theophilus to kind of lean into all that, he had to say something really, really crazy. He had to say, Caesar is Lord. Now, he had come to the conclusion that Caesar really isn't like a deity. And the Lord literally means boss. He's like, I don't think I can see this broken man as my master. And yet, and yet, in order to leave here and go there, he had to leave where he wanted to stay, which was all the influence and all the affluence, to go to a place that wasn't really certain. And he was wondering, should I put my hope in Jesus? In other words, should I grab the branch and put all my weight on it. Should I trust the Lord with all my heart, lean on my understanding? So what Theophilus does is he takes his money and he hires a really smart guy named Luke who spends years, if not a decade, going and investigating whether or not Theophilus should trust Jesus or Caesar. Real people, real human life, same battles that we're struggling with. Should we put all of our hope in Jesus? Well, what if he lets us down? What if it's not good? What if it's not what we thought it would be? What if people make fun of us? What if we lose these things? All these things, right? And so he hires this guy, and Luke goes and investigates everything by scan. Eyewitnesses. He goes and interviews them. He goes and reads all the documents. He goes and listens to all the preachers. And he puts together an oral, kind of, uh, an orderly account. And he says this. He writes these things, both for Theophilus and for us, so that we can have certainty of the things we've been taught. In other words, so that we can start to walk in and enjoy the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. So, last week we saw the centurion finally put his fate in Jesus, and now we're going to see another lady. And this is going to mess up your whole understanding of it, because she does nothing except cry. That's it. That's her role in the story. So, what just happened is Jesus just healed this servant, and all of his followers are going, that's amazing, that's amazing. And so they start following him, and Jesus is going to leave Capernaum and go 20 miles south. 15, 20 miles, that's a long, long trek, couple of days trek, with his followers and the crowd. They're following him. And what we're going to see today is there's going to be this, this huge crowd of followers who are so celebrating what it could be like to be in the kingdom of heaven. And we're going to see this kind of collision with this funeral procession. Sadness and pain and sorrow in the kingdom of earth. And literally, we're going to see these two worlds collide. And we're going to see what Jesus does there. So here we go. I'm reading Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. It's also up here on the screens. And this is what it says. Soon afterward, he, that's Jesus, went to a town called Nain. Okay, this is the only time the town shows up in the scriptures. Pretty interesting. And so it's about six miles from Nazareth, where Jesus is from. About 15, 20 miles 
from Capernaum, where they just came from. It's right between, it's right on the border to Samaria, which is a, you know, the, the uh, for the Jews, the bad people, right? And so he's right there with these folks, really, really tiny, tiny, know nothing, do nothing town. And that's where Jesus somehow decides to go. He goes there. And his disciples, these are his followers, and a great crowd went with him. So now all of a sudden, you've seen Forrest Gump, where one starts running, and then they all start running. And it's like, all these people are just following Jesus everywhere. They decide to follow this man 20 miles down the road. This is crazy. And so they're going. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. So here's what we got. Got a dead person. Right? Literally, Jesus comes, and as he's coming, there is a group of people, a crowd, carrying a dead man. Dead. Like, open casket and completely dead. And this is what it says. The only son of his mother. So we see this widow. We find out a little later that he's probably a teenage boy. So she's probably not old. I mean, starting having kids, about 15, 16. So she's late 20s, early 30s. So she's a widow, meaning she has no husband. Her husband's died, so she's already gone through this process before. So in that culture, terrible, but just the reality is uh, she was dependent on a man to provide for her for the here and now, and then she was dependent on her children to provide for her in the future. There was no 401k. There was no social security. There were no nursing homes. The way by which this lady would have survived in her old age was that she would have a son and then a grandson who would, and family who would take care of her. So this lady has lost her husband already. And now she is burying her teenage son. You can imagine the pain and grief. And I thought about trying to camp out there and help you feel it. But I don't know that I want you to have to wallow in that. But I think you do have to pause and go, this is real death. This would be all the reasons why this lady would not want to believe in a God. And she lost her young son. So here she is. This is what it says. The only son. That word begotten. It's the same one we get in John three sixteen. For God to the world that he gave his only begotten son. This is it. This is her whole world. This is her whole hope. And he's now dead. And she was a widow. And watch this. And this is a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So see this. You got two different crowds. You got the, the crowd over here. They're mourning and they're grieving. And there is a dead teenager in an open casket and over here you got this huge crowd that's still marveling at what jesus just did and there so there's this two completely contrasted worlds you see this throughout the scriptures where god uses these contrasting things to help us get a picture and you go okay well it's a small town this lady's a widow who are these people and this is so interesting don't want to spend a lot of time here but um in jewish culture it still happens to this day some um there are what's called professional mourners they literally were hired to go with the funeral procession and grieve. So they I mean, they would rip their clothes, they would scream, they would cry, which sounds a little bit strange, but it's for a couple of reasons. One, it's to actually help those others grieving not feel out of place. So uh, it's kind of a broken part of uh, church culture that at the end of a lot of services and a lot of places and revivals, there's what's called the invitation the altar call they call people down and in a lot of churches they'll actually bring people to you know the response to the gospel is to invite them down to the front 
and pray a prayer and then go to a room and get a Bible and put their name down. And I mean, many of us maybe even became Christians that way. So I'm not knocking that. But one of the things that happens in those revivals is they have like the, the biblical counselors whose job it is to help pray with people and connect them to it. But they don't, they're not already up front. So what happens at the end during the last song, Just As I Am, or whenever they're singing it, the, um, they, they would invite people down front. But what they do in those environments is they actually tell the ushers and biblical counselors when they say, come on down, to get up out of their chair and come down then. As if they're also responding to the gospel. And the, the reason being is not, you know, to manipulate them. Maybe some places are for that purpose. But just to not make it uncomfortable for those people who are about to walk down, Right. And so some of the process of mourning is, hey, there is some deep pain and sorrow, I can imagine, for this widow. And it might seem really out of place for her to just be screaming and wailing. So one of the parts of the funeral was to have professional mourners who would do that alongside. The other reason is a lot of us aren't really in touch with our emotions, right? And one of the ways that people grieve, you know, like is, you know, through art. Like art is cathartic that you watch a movie and you feel the pain of what's going on. Like, I don't know, maybe you watch the movie Stepmom 20 years ago and grieve deeply something. I, I don't know what you would have grieved, but you use the movie kind of as the benefit to help help you grieve. And so uh, professional mourners were there to actually help people kind of vicariously grieve through the professional mourner. Okay, so you got this. I mean, this would have been absurdly loud. So you got to see the picture. Oh, so Jesus and his followers show up in this know-nothing town. Nobody knows why they're there. Nobody has any clue. They're just following Jesus. Jesus goes to this town. And all these people are kind of in this celebratory mood, all laughing and, yeah, you know, filled with great joy. And there's a collision with a teenager in a casket, a young widow mom, and a bunch of people screaming and crying and in genuinely deep pain. So you have this collision happen between them. So a considerable crowd in the town with her and so, or from the town. In verse 13, it says this. And when the Lord, that's Jesus here. And when the Lord saw her, when the Lord saw her, when the Lord saw her, so he sees her in name, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. This is really, really confusing. So Jesus is right here meeting them. This lady's in deep pain, and it says, this is really helpful, because if he doesn't have this, it sounds really, really obnoxious. It says he had deep compassion. Literally, that word means like your, like his kidneys and his heart and his lungs. He felt it on the inside, like all of him. So he had this deep pain. In other words, he's looking at this and going, oh, that's not the way it's supposed to be. So deep compassion for her. But he says something really strange. He says, quit your crying before I give you something to cry about. That's not what he says exactly. But he says to her, don't weep. Now, first glance, it sounds really, um, it sounds really unaware. What do you mean, don't weep? He literally has compassion, so we know that. And he tells her to stop her crying. Stop, stop crying. Stop. No, no, don't cry. Now, can you imagine this? This lady who's with her dead son, open casket, and all of a sudden this guy has all of his followers. He comes up to her. She doesn't know, she doesn't know who he is, and she probably doesn't even understand that he has compassion yet. Looks at her and tells her to stop crying. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine somebody telling you to stop crying as you're grieving the loss of a loved one? So Jesus tells her to stop crying. See what happens next. Then he came up and touched the beer. That is, um, so caskets are heavy, and that would have been like a, a rolling dolly, right? So this is this big cart. 
So it touches the bier. And the bearer stood still. And he said, this is how we know it's a teenager, young man, I say to you, arise. This is the same language that you would have used to wake up your child this morning. Hey, honey, get up. This is just literally telling him to wake up. Wake up. So he says, now imagine this. First he just has entered, connected this lady, told her to stop crying. And now he's literally saying to this boy, hey, get up, quit sleeping. Could you imagine how confusing this is? Like, what is this? Who is this strange dude? Lots of weeping, lots of wailing. He tells her to stop crying. And then he touches the rolling cart. Doesn't even touch the body. In some ways this is important because Jews weren't allowed to touch dead things. So this allows him to keep ministering a little quicker for the people who are really put off by that. So he touches it, and he says to the boy, Hey, young man, arise. Now watch this. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. So that word dead right there literally means that which lacks life. So this boy had completely disconnected the life. He was dead, completely dead. This lady is wailing, and Jesus just shows up and says, Arise. Now watch this, and and then it says, And the man sat up, and he began to speak. I have no idea what he says, but whatever he says was amazing. Y'all know this. Um, Like if you've been in a uh, delivery room or had those experiences where a new baby's born and you're like, is, is the baby okay? And then that first scream, you know what I'm talking about? That noise just is like, oh, there's my child. There's the help, you know, all those things. Like in this moment, all of a sudden this boy sits up and he starts to speak. Some of you have seen this maybe um, if you watch the football game or a basketball game and someone gets knocked out. And, every, you know, it's just quiet in the whole place. And then all of a sudden you see the, the, the guy kind of sit up or come to and start talking like uh there's just this, this huge relief and so all of a sudden this boy starts talking and then you know, guys see this and it says jesus gave him isn't really important that word is a gift so amazing that jesus gifts him back to his mother gifts now this is it's two different ways to think about it. There, there's resurrection that's the word we use about what jesus does he dies and comes back to life and then there's a word i would use called revivification this is a revivification, not resurrection. In other words, this boy comes back to life, but he will die again. So this is just a moment in, in time where this kid comes back to life, and at some point in his old age, or maybe you know in his 70s, 60s, whatever, he will die again. But in this moment, he brings him back to life and goes, Hey, I'm going to restore this relationship between you and your mother. So you see that happen, and it says the dead man came and began to speak, and Jesus, Jesus, Jesus gave him back to his mother. This is a gift from God. Watch this, verse 16. Fear sees them all. Collision between here. A lot of people in deep pain and sorrow wailing. A bunch of people over here who are celebrating what God did. All of a sudden, they have this collision right here in the doorway. And it says, fear sees them all. What, and what's interesting is that, that language there for fear literally means to withdraw because they're not worthy. So you would think in this moment, they would all be like, oh, Jesus, yeah, high five. They are so overwhelmed at what just happened. They literally go, we're not worthy. The wife, I mean, the mom, the boy, all the people on both sides, fear sees them all. But watch what happens next. Then it says they glorified God, saying, 
A great prophet has risen among us here. You've got to see this again. This is not perfect worldview. They don't have an understanding yet. He is a prophet, but he's much more than a prophet. He is God in the flesh, but it says a great prophet was among us all. And this is so important. He said, God has visited his people. God has visited his people. So all of a sudden, these people are responding. Last word I'll say, and then I'll help you, help you say this. That word visited literally means that he inspected and selected his people. That God had chosen people to make himself known to. That God looked out, saw the professional mourner, saw all the people in pain, saw all the people following him in name, right? And he selected them to make himself known. So God had selected his people. So he invited them all in the kingdom. Watch this. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. This report spread through the whole of Judea. This is so messed up because they're not even in Judea. They're in a state called Galilee. They're a day's journey or more to Judea. You have to go through a pagan country of Samaria to get there, way around it. They're not there. But it tells us all of a sudden this movement starts going back to Judea. Really, really important because that's where Jerusalem is. That's the capital of the Jews, right? This is, this is where this movement is going to start, and everybody's going to start to talk about it, right? And so it says this report, dead to life. Jesus giving us a picture of that. Death to life. And in that moment it says it spread. So first we've got to go, well, does God always do that? No. In fact, in this story, you got a big, two big mobs, and from what we can gather, this is the only person he brings back to life. Who will die again? So what's the purpose of this? And uh, what you've got to understand when you see miracles in the Scriptures, it's not that God's just trying to show off, right? And it's not just to fix one problem just because he wants to fix the problem. He has some compassion here. But every time you see a miracle in strip, Scriptures, what you should see is you should see that God's actually given us a window to the way it actually works in the kingdom of heaven. So it's not like God is, um, is like interrupting the natural world. He's actually showing us what his natural world looks like. In other words, he's showing you what it looks like to be there always. So what Jesus is doing here is he's showing this mom that in the kingdom of heaven for all eternity, there's not death. In the kingdom of heaven for all eternity, there's not broken relationships. He literally gives her him back to her, right? So in the kingdom of heaven, when we see anything, when you see blind people see, lame people walk, dead people live, it's always for one reason, to give us a glimpse of what's to come. To give us a picture of what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like for all eternity. So you go, well, how do we get from here to there? And the only way is through faith. So what I just want to do, don't usually do it this way, but I just want to tell you the whole process. Let me just tell you the 10 things that happen here so that you can see them, and then we'll wrap up and sing, right? And so here's the first one. The way that it works, the way that people began to live in the kingdom of heaven, so if you're brand new to this, and you're wondering where to start, the way that it all works, first, first one is this. It all starts with Jesus. So here's what's crazy for you here, listening online, some of you out in the parking lot. This has never made sense to you. Never made sense. And all of a sudden, you are going... Yeah, I don't really like here. And if there's really a kingdom that exists for all eternity, where death and sorrow and pain doesn't exist in a thousand years from now, you tell me, you tell me that's available to me? 
then I am, I am for the first time interested. Not only you say that there's a God who kind of existed before us and loved us so much that he created us to pour out his love and affection for us, into us from now and all eternity. Finally, for the first time, for some reason, maybe not because I'm an eloquent speaker, none of those things, right? All of a sudden, it, this light bulb came off. And the reason it's starting to come, or come on for you, the reason being is not because this was eloquent, persuasive, is that today Jesus is starting with him for you. So for you right now, uh, that, that bulb goes off. Now, for many of us, that's already happened. And there's nine more steps that'll be worthwhile to you. So what we see here is it starts with Jesus. He left Capernaum, makes the trip, a couple days trip, all the way down to Nain. Only time this happens in the Bible, which we can then conclude the whole reason, the whole reason Jesus does this is because he wants to meet this lady. You know this? She didn't pray a prayer. She didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. They're just there. It's all Jesus. Not about their behavior. Not about what they understood. They didn't fast. They didn't, you know, eat certain foods. They literally, she was grieving. He was dead. And all this, all this has everything to do with Jesus. Very little to do with them. They did not do anything for this. They didn't manufacture it. They didn't. They felt pain and sorrow. So it starts with Jesus. But why? Why does he do this? Why does he do it for them? Why would he make himself known to you? He tells us. He tells us in verse 11. In verse 12 and 13. Or verse 13 it says, And he had compassion on her. So important here. It starts with Jesus, and he explains to us why he would do that. And it's because he has compassion. Like I told you, he feels that in his heart. Hear me, hear me. Whatever is going on in your world, painful relationship, bad diagnosis, financial problems, lost your job, whatever that is, he is looking at you and has deep compassion for what you're feeling. The whole idea of the gospel that Jesus stepped onto this planet only happens because he had a plan for you, and this world has broken that plan. And in deep compassion, he's making himself known to you. So it starts with Jesus, the reason being, it's for deep compassion. And so who does he go to? Those things are done. Who does he go to? Those in pain. See that? Who does he go to? He makes a 20-mile journey for those people who are in pain. You see, our world is really broken, and you're going, I don't know that God exists. I'm not even sure I'm interested in him. It doesn't make any sense. And he's going, no, 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 no. Please, please, please don't write him off just because it doesn't make sense to you. Remember, obedience over understanding. And in the middle of this, it's in the middle of this pain and sorrow that finally maybe the light bulb's going off, and you're going, there's got to be a better way. So it starts with Jesus. The reason he does this is out of deep compassion. The people he's coming to are those who are in deep pain. Okay, what does he want for you? What does he want for you? Remember what he tells her out of deep compassion? Don't weep. Hear me. Start to Jesus. Because of deep compassion. For those of us who are in pain and his goal in this is for you to not weep anymore. You see, when we cry and feel the pain of death, his goal is going, hey, no, no, no. There is no sting in death. We will, we, will, we will feel the sadness of it, but we'll look for a better future. The way that you get to view death long term, for those of us who walk with Jesus, it's like um, those of us who are going on vacation, right? And you have two different flights. One leaves a little earlier than the other. Both of you are going to end up in Hawaii 
or however you say that, right? You're going to end up on vacation. The only difference is one person gets to the airport and gets to the destination a little sooner, right? And so Jesus, his goal in this is to meet you where you are because of deep compassion, responding to your pain so that you don't have to weep anymore. You are right. This world is not the way it's supposed to be. And Jesus is going, no, no, think about it, think about it, think about it. Why in the world do you get to the end of your life and go, man, that went so fast. Here's the reason. You weren't meant to live in this birth to death, 75, 80, 90 years. That's all over here. But over there, there is a kingdom that exists forever. And you're going, I'm not sure I believe that. Okay, then why are you here? Like, you're a real human. You and I literally are sitting in the same room right now, and I'm talking and you're listening. That is all true. That is all very, very true. This is not a figment of someone's imagination. We are real people with real souls that long for real things. Why do you have those longings? Because there's a God who loves you. And a God who wants those longings to be fulfilled in him and him alone. So it starts with Jesus. He does it out of deep compassion. For those of us who are in pain because he wants you not to weep anymore. The scripture tells us there will come a day where there will be no more tears or pain or sadness. Now that's not today. But he's pointing us to this option that we can walk through the door in faith to not weep in pain forever. Okay, then what do we do? So start to Jesus for our compassion, because he's compassionate uh, for, in, for those of us in pain so that we cannot weep anymore. So what's your response? What do you do? What do you do? Really, really simple. Same thing the widow did. The same thing the centurion did last week. The only part you have in here is just to finally acknowledge that you don't can't fix your problem. You're at the end of your rope. We started with six weeks ago looking at the, the, the Beatitudes. is literally this idea that those who are mourning will be comforted. When we finally come to the conclusion that there is no way that you and I can get from here to there. And let's acknowledge there's a there you long for. There's no way that you can get from here to there on your own. There's no way you can unlock the door. That's it. To finally come to the conclusion that your performance, that your behavior... That those things are the things that's finally going to make things right with God. You know this. You just saw two, two sets of parents looking at their children who they have to change their diapers and keep them up all night. And yet they love them so much. Why? Because they're their children. They come to the conclusion that it is not your performance that gets you into the kingdom. Right? This widow could do nothing. You know who else couldn't do anything? The teenage boy. He was dead. So your only response is to finally come to the conclusion that you can't get from here to there. And then what do you do? Well, there's a response. You wake up. You wake up. Jesus looks at this person and says, wake up. Arise. Don't live in that sorrow and death and pain any longer. Wake up. Arise. Walk through the door. Come into the kingdom. Right? Literally, the only response is for us is we acknowledge we can't fix it, and then we just obey Jesus, even if it doesn't make sense to us yet. Obedience over understanding, right? You just wake up. You just wake up. Literally, you can wake up. You can get up in the morning and go, I'm going to live in the kingdom today. I'm going to look for Jesus, and I'm going to ask him to make himself known, right? You can do those things. That's what he's inviting you to, and you're like, I never thought about that before. It never made sense. Yeah, I understand that because it starts with Jesus. So if he's making this known to you, he is telling you to wake up. He's telling you to live in the kingdom. He's telling you to enjoy the kingdom, right? So wake up. And then the next one is this. Receive his gifts. Don't feel shame about it. Don't feel guilt that he's forgiven you. Don't feel a bunch of pity and sorrow that he has given you a clean slate. 
Literally, what we see is he tells the boy to wake up, and then what does he do? He gives him back to his mother. So, so beautiful. Throughout the scriptures in the Old Testament, it says that the way the enemy meant for harm, God is using for good, the saving of many lives. Then it tells us in the New Testament that he works all things together for the good for those who love him. It tells us in the Old Testament that he's going to restore what the locusts have eaten. So he wants to give you a new life. He wants you to give you a healthy relationship. He wants to give you joy. So you just have to receive it. you got to open it up, right? You can't go, well, I don't deserve that. Shame on me. I don't deserve to be forgiven. All that's true. Remember, that was, that was point number five. You have to come to the conclusion that you don't deserve it. That, that fear that kind of went through him. Whoa, what's going on, right? And so you just have to acknowledge that, but then receive it. Right? Quit walking in shame. The kingdom of heaven has no shame in it. The kingdom of heaven is fully available to you. So receive the gift of it. Literally, today, walk out of here smiling, going, completely forgiven. Completely right before the God of the universe for now and for all eternity. So receive it. And then verse 8, acknowledge your unworthiness. Right? So it makes it a gift. takes away the entitlement. You don't deserve it. So God, I can walk and acknowledge that these are gifts that I don't deserve. And those are really important that you do both. You acknowledge the gifts and you receive them, and you understand that you don't deserve them, meaning you can't pay for it. There's nothing you can do to perform well enough to receive the love and grace that comes from God. Those two things go together so you don't get entitled. So you see what happens. They respond. The, the mom gets the son back, and then all of a sudden it says they've had great fear. They were like, we are not worthy. And then next, can you respond in worship? See what it says here? It says, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. They glorified God. They responded in worship and acknowledged his presence. So number nine, you respond in worship and understand his presence. God has visited us. Your response in all this, brand new Christian, been in it a while, you respond and understand you're not worthy. You worship him. That's why we sing songs. And then we, we, we acknowledge his presence. And then the last one, see what it says, verse 17. And the report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Last one is this. Tell others about him. You see, when you get invited to leave here and go there, this isn't where you start coming to church and start dressing different, burn your CDs, whatever that is. This is all of a sudden, they're so great. Everyone you knew over here, you want to bring along. Right? This isn't, oh, I got new friends, I got to tuck in my shirt, I got to part my hair. No, no, that's the, the gospel. The reality is, when you leave here and get a picture of what there's like, you can't help but go and tell everyone over there, here, about there. You got it? So the response was that literally, they went and told the Jewish people, the religious people, they couldn't help but go, this God was so good to us. He gave us gifts that we didn't deserve. He forgave us. He gave us a picture of the future that we get to live in. You can't help but go, not out of shame. But as a natural response for living here, over there, right here, you go and tell everybody else. And so what's going to happen, really simple, we're going to sing a song. And I love this song that we're going to sing. We sang it last week, and the band's going to come over here called Healer. And let me tell you about this song. song, uh, maybe new to you, it came out 15 years ago, maybe, 14 years ago. And then it says this, you hold my every moment, you calm my raging seas. You walk with me through fire and heal all my disease. I believe you're my healer. I believe you're all I need. And so what's interesting is um, when the song was written, it was written by 
pretty famous worship leader and a pretty famous worship movement, uh, Hillsong and Planet Shakers. And the guy who wrote it would tour with this oxygen tank with him. And he would talk about his cancer. And he would sing the song so confidently about his cancer, right? And he would sing it, and he would go, I believe you're my healer, right? And everybody would respond. And then about, you know, nine months into the story or whatever, uh, he said he was healed from the cancer. And everybody was celebrating. Then about a year into the story, he stood up on a stage and said, I lied. I made up the whole thing. I didn't really have cancer. I was addicted to pornography. And I was dealing with all that kind of stuff, and I didn't know that God could actually heal me. So I came up with a story so that other people could believe in the confidence of who God is. Literally, the whole story was made up. And so he had this idea of what healing looks like. Healing is when you get cancer and you get healed, right? Healing is when you're in a, in a, in a coffin and you arise, right? That is not what healing is like. Healing is when the light bulb goes off and you get that you get the understanding that you have full right into the kingdom of God for all eternity. That might mean your cancer is healed. That might mean your marriage is fixed. That might mean all your financial troubles go away. But that's not what healing is. Healing is you were in death and now you're in life. You see, what we mess up in the story of the gospel is this idea that somehow we were out swimming and fell off, or we were on a boat and we fell off the boat. And Jesus sees us out there, and he goes, oh, I'll save you. And he throws you a lifesaver, and you hop on the lifesaver, and you kind of ride to shore. Like somehow Jesus just had to help us a little a nudge. That is not what the gospel is. The gospel is you're on a boat. You fell to the bottom of the ocean floor. Water filled your lungs, and you were dead and blue. And animals started feeding off of you. And all of a sudden, Jesus, in his great mercy, saw you in the water, went down to you, breathed life into you, came and brought you and set your feet on the solid shore and goes, this is you and I forever. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is we deserve nothing and God gives us everything. So this guy didn't understand as he thought that somehow it was still performance-based and it was these little bitty moments where God does some healing. No, it's so much greater than that. You can walk out of here perfectly healed. By that I mean perfectly in the life that God has for you, deeply connected to the life source. Well, how do you get there? Jesus does all the work. Literally believing and trusting and making those claims. So it's so beautiful. But even today, as we wrap this up, you can start living in the kingdom of God by declaring these truths over your life and over your family now. And so would you stand with me as the band leads us in this song?
hearts with the confidence that you are everything that we need, that you love us more than we can imagine, and that nothing is impossible with you. So we praise you today, and good things